You're listening to the Harborside Church Podcast. To connect with us online, go to www.harborside.org. We hope you enjoy this message. Good morning. Good morning. It's good to be here. Good morning and welcome to Harborside Church this morning. Welcome, long weekend stay-at-homers. It's good. It's good. I'm glad that you're here. Uh, as Kate said before, we're just over halfway in our great series in the book of Daniel called In the Lion's Den. You may have noticed if you check Facebook uh, this week, we were promoting a series, Daniel in the Lion's Den, and uh, a bit of a spelling mistake, Daniel in the Loins Den, <clears throat> which, is a, which is a very different series. Um, <clears throat> we're going to get to that series next term, In the Loins Den. Whew, we had a chuckle about that one. We were talking, laughing about that in the car, and my son's like, what's so funny? What, what is loins? Don't worry about it, mate. Ask your kids' church leader about that one. <laughs> in the lion's den, named after the famous story of Daniel being thrown into the lion's den in chapter 6. We get, we get there in two weeks. We've also titled it In the Lion's Den because sometimes living in this city, sometimes living in Sydney, living in an urban environment like this, feels like we're living in the lion's den doesn't it? feels like we're living in the lion's den. And one of those reasons is because Jesus calls us to live our lives really differently, doesn't he? He calls us to live lives really differently. And if we do that, we're going to stand out. We saw that particularly last week. We're going to stand out. And one place where this is just so true is the area of pride, of pride. Christians, we're to be humble people, right? Not to be built up by pride, we, need, we ought to be humble. And this is so countercultural, right? I mean, especially today when we f- might feel like, you know what, particularly at work, we've got to do anything to get ahead. We, we've got to kind of do anything to make it. And humility kind of sometimes feels like it's pretty low on the priority list. So today, we are looking at this pretty large topic of pride and humility. How do we get it? How do we get humility? How do we get rid of pride? How do we get humility? How do we live counterculturally with humility? Live a life of countercultural humility. In our passage today, we see just a fantastic case study of pride. King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, we've seen in past weeks that King Nebuchadnezzar is truly powerful. Maybe top 10 of the most wealthy and powerful individuals to ever walk the face of the earth. King Nebuchadnezzar. And in verse 4 of this chapter, early on in this chapter, he tells us that he was contented and prosperous, that he'd made it, that he'd got to the top. And yet, while he's at the top, he falls. The most powerful person in the world at that time, he loses everything. And here's the crazy thing about the passage today. He's at the top, he loses everything, and he's thankful for it. Did you notice that? He's thankful for it. Now, I want to try something, a bit of an exercise here this morning. Instead of a band story, to start things off, we're going to do an exercise. Okay, so I want you to try something. I want you to think about fulfilling your dreams for a moment. Think about whatever it might be. Imagine that you've achieved everything you want in your heart. Now, I'm not going to ask you, I'm not going to put your hand up and share. So I want you to be honest with yourself right now. What, is, what in your heart do you really want? You really want, if you're honest with yourself. What do I really want? What's my heart's desire? 
Now, imagine that you achieve it. It's given to you. Imagine that you achieve all that your heart desires. It might be seeing your partner at your law firm, headmistress, headmaster at the most prestigious school in Sydney. Could be topic sales, sales exec, could be your small business on the cover of BRW. It might be you got that house, that car, and that boat. I don't know what it is for you, but imagine you've got it. Now imagine it's taken away. It's been taken away for you. And imagine being happy about it. Imagine everything you want fulfilled. You got it. Imagine being taken away and then imagine being thankful that it's taken away. This is what happens to King Nebuchadnezzar. He loses everything and he praises God for it. At the beginning of chapter 4 and at the end of chapter 4, we see he praises God for who he is and what he's done in his own life, which is bring him low. Why? What could possess him to be thankful for losing everything? Because what he got after he was humbled was greater than what he had before. What he got after he was humbled was greater than what he had before. Greater than all the riches of the richest kingdom maybe this world has ever seen. What was it? What did he get? He found spiritual humility. He found spiritual humility. Now, you and I, we don't have a great deal in common with Nebuchadnezzar. He lived about 2,600 years ago in a culture very different from our own. And not many of us have the wealth and the power of Nebuchadnezzar. Not many of us are kings kind of outside our homes. Not many of us have the wealth and power of Nebuchadnezzar, even in Mossman. But I tell you what, we do have some things in common with our friend Nebuchadnezzar. This issue of pride, this issue of pride still present for you and I. Now, here's the sneaky thing about pride. You ready? Here's the sneaky thing. Most of us think we don't have a problem with it. Most of us think we don't struggle with it because we're really good at comparing. If you're anything like me, well, I'm not as prideful as them. They've got an issue with it. She's got an issue with it, obviously, but me, not really. You know what the funny thing about pride is? You know what the first indication that you might have a problem with pride? You think you don't have a problem with pride. So I know that's pretty sneaky. I know that's very sneaky. I've tricked you there. The preacher's tricked you. So hopefully maybe I've tricked you or I've encouraged you to think, all right, this could be an issue for me. I'm going to listen. I'll give you the next hour and 45 minutes. <clears throat> a joke. Now, the reason it affects every single one of us is because it's a heart issue, right? It's a heart issue. It affects me just the same. It's a heart issue. We've all got one of them. So this chapter shows us three things. Chapter 4 in the book of Daniel shows us three things. It shows us that there is... There is a hole in our heart. First thing we're going to see. There's a hole in our heart. We're going to spend a fair bit of time there. That's the first point. There's a hole in our heart. Second, our hearts need to be made whole. The second thing we're going to see. And I want to end with this question, which is, how do we get wholeheartedness? That is, how can our hearts be healed from pride then? So, hole in our hearts. Our hearts need to be made whole. And how do we get wholeheartedness? As in, how do we get healed from pride? Let's get going with the first one. There's a hole in our heart. Now, we started our reading at verse 24. Sean read that so well from us. We started our reading at verse 24, but the chapter starts obviously back in verse 1. It's a long reading, so we thought we'd condense it. But at the beginning, we see Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. We saw that in chapter 2. This guy has a lot of dreams. He has another dream, and it scares him a lot. 
Wakes up in the morning, he, he gets his wise men in again, and this time he tells them the dream, but they, again, can't interpret the dream for him. So he brings Daniel in. Now, this guy's got a pretty terrible memory. I mean, Daniel has a great track record with interpreting dreams, but he seems to have forgotten that, so Daniel's no longer number one on the speed dial, but he brings Daniel in, and he suddenly remembers, oh, yes, of course, you have great wisdom and insight, and the spirit of the gods is in you. He tells Daniel the dream, and Daniel is disturbed. Verse 19 says he was greatly perplexed for a time because he didn't relish the idea of telling the king the meaning because it's not good news for the almighty king. What's the dream? Here it is briefly. Nebuchadnezzar dreams of an enormous tree, a giant tree in the middle of the land. It is the very picture of prosperity. It's healthy. It's huge. It's, its leaves are beautiful. And all the animals representing all the peoples of the kingdom come to it to be fed and for protection, for shade from the sun. This enormous, incredible tree. Then a messenger comes down from heaven and says, cut it down. Its greatness will be taken away from it. Cut it down, take the leaves off, strip it off, cut it down, leave the stump there, but cut it down. And then, it's a bit of a trippy dream, then this tree becomes a wild animal and spends the next seven times, we'll get into that in a minute, in the wilderness. The tree becomes an animal. It kind of sounds like my wife explaining her dream to me the next day, which is like, you were there, but you weren't you. And it was, ugh, anyway. So this dream's a bit of a trippy dream. That The tree becomes a wild animal and sent into the wilderness for seven times. Now, Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, he's got guts. He says to Nebuchadnezzar, you are that tree, and you will become that wild animal. Nebuchadnezzar, he says, this is real. This is scary. This is going to happen to you. There's real danger coming. Take the opportunity to change your ways. Take the opportunity to repent. And what does our friend, the king, do? <clears throat> Nothing. He ignores him. Why? I reckon because Nebuchadnezzar thinks, who can stop me? I'm at the top. Who can fire me? No one can make me redundant. No one can make my department obsolete. What army could come against me? I've conquered them all. So he's apathetic. He doesn't care. And yet, no matter how accomplished or successful he is, his prosperity is not complete. It's never complete. And it doesn't lead to good sleep. Do you see that? In verse 4, he might be prosperous and content, but he doesn't sleep well. A dream comes and he's terribly afraid. See, in verse 4, he says, I was content and prosperous, but a dream terrified him. See, Nebuchadnezzar gets a lesson that you and I can relate to, and it's this. Whole empires can be poured into our hearts, and it'll never be enough. Now, many of us don't realize this as completely as Nebuchadnezzar does, because we actually haven't got what our hearts desire yet. We're still on the journey, so many of us, right? We're still trying to climb that slippery pole, whatever ladder, whatever rope it might be. And we don't fully grasp what some people do, is that when they get what their heart desires, they hold it and it just isn't what they thought. They're dissatisfied when they get it. Here's a picture of a, of a surfer called Joey Baran. He was known as the California Kid, and he kind of surfed in the late 80s, sorry, late 70s and early 80s in the US. 
in California, and he was a, a pro surfer. And his dream was to win the ultimate surfing competition, the Pipeline Masters. Now, if you know anything about surfing, it's a big deal. It's like the Wimbledon uh, of surfing. It's huge. And uh, he did win it in 1984. And he spent, before this, he spent so much time training and surfing and do other, doing other surf competitions to win Pipeline Masters. This was his ultimate dream. It's what he lived for. It's what he desperately wanted. And he thought when he won it, it would be the most life-fulfilling moment ever. It would be the pinnacle of his existence. He describes, this is, this is a picture of him, sorry, it's not a very good quality, him on the podium. He's about to sort of hoist the trophy over his head. This is the moment. This is what he'd been picturing in his mind and in his heart. This is what I want. And he, this is him achieving it. And then this is him describing pretty much this moment and a few moments later. He says this. All of a sudden, it started pouring rain. It's presented on the beach, right, out in the open. All of a sudden, it started pouring rain. Like within five minutes, it was heavy, heavy, monsoonal type of rain. So everyone left. And literally within 15 minutes of being crowned the king of the surf world, I was standing on the beach in the pouring rain with my three surfboards by myself. And the thought was so clear and so profound in my mind, this is it? Like, this is my life? There's got to be more than this. See, Joy Baran and Nebuchadnezzar before him achieved their hopes and dreams and realized it's not enough. I must be made for more than this. Jim Carrey, the famous Hollywood actor and comedian, says this, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. See, I don't know if you've thought about this before. It's kind of, I was talking with a friend of mine and he said this, and it's, I think it's really true. Our desires are actually limitless. You thought about that? Our desires are insatiable. Whole empires cannot satisfy the human heart. It was made for eternity. Only God can fill it. Okay, so Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, terrifies him. What was the purpose of that dream? What was he supposed to learn? Let's have a look. Verse 25 tells us, you will be driven away. This is a prophecy of what's going to happen to him. You'll be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you. Here we go. Until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The purpose of the dream was for the king to acknowledge that he is not the author of his life. His kingdom, his success, it actually isn't his doing. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't do it. So we're told, 12 months later, these things happen to him. Verse 29 and 30. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built? as the royal residence, by my mighty power, for the glory of my majesty. I mean, isn't this just a picture of pride, right? Now, what's Nebuchadnezzar doing? He's saying, look at what I've done. Look at what I have achieved for the glory of me, of my pride. Now, don't get me wrong. Babylon was an impressive city. Two of the ancient wonders of the world were there. 
The first one was the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. You might have heard of it. This is in the desert, by the way, and he created a garden city, a wonder of the world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. The second one was the wall of the city. Picture Manhattan in New York. Babylon, bigger than this. And it had a wall all around it, as wide, the top of the wall, as wide so a four-horse chariot could turn around. I mean, this is an impressive city. And Nebuchadnezzar is responsible for much of this sort of building, much of its grandness. Very impressive. But this is what spiritual pride does. So what spiritual pride does. It says, I did that. I did it. Life is for me and by me. I'm the author of my life and my accomplishments. Now, this is, in essence, what Nebuchadnezzar is saying. And if we're honest, why not be? I think this is how we act too. It's how pride works in our lives. It's insidious, right? But it works differently depending on how your life is going. Right? If our life is going well, we think, you know, if our life's going well, if it's full of achievements and accomplishments, we think, yep, this is what I'm owed. I've been working harder than everybody. I've worked smarter than everybody. And this is right. Come to me. It's rightfully mine. See that? What if it's not going well? If life's going bad, you know, if, we, if life is not going well, we think, well, this isn't fair. I don't deserve this. You see, I'm not getting what I'm owed. Pride says, I deserve this or I deserve more than what I'm getting. I was trying to think this week how to illustrate this and I'll uh, share a very real struggle for me involving treats involving chocolate. I wonder if you can relate. It's not a very sophisticated illustration, but we'll see. works like this. Come home at the end of the day, or maybe after dinner, and that, that sweet tooth is calling, right? And you just think, I've worked hard today. I've hit the gym. I've burnt 7,000 calories at my ridiculous gym. I've, uh, you know, I, I've worked hard. I've, I've kicked some goals. I have earned these several pieces of lint, mint, dark chocolate. That's my jam, that stuff right there. None of that 85% lint rubbish my wife tries to give me. She's trying to love me, but, you know, that stuff, 85%, it's terrible, it's disgusting. But this is what happens. You know, I think I've, I've worked hard today, right? I've worked hard. I've earned this. Or what about a bad day? You come home, you're tired, it's cold outside, you're grumpy, and you just think, I deserve this. You see, pride does it to our lives. We think, we look at our lives and say, I'm owed this or I, I don't deserve this. Pride is what one commentator ultimately says. I like this. Cosmic plagiarism. Pride is cosmic plagiarism. It says, that's mine. I deserve it. All I have is mine. It's unfair if I don't get it. But here's a question. How much can we really take credit for? Think about it. I've been pretty convicted of this, thinking about this this week. How much of our lives can we actually take credit for? Think about this. Did we choose our parents? Did we choose our early education? Or just think about the, the many decisions that were made on our behalf before we were able to make decisions. Did we choose the country we were born in or the time we were born in? I mean, what choice did we have of being born here or wherever we were born compared to being born in 14th century England during the bubonic plague? 
We didn't have much choice there, did we? What about even our, our talents or our abilities? Yes, we can take responsibility for, for honing them and crafting them, but what about the seed of them? Shouldn't this humble us just a little? So the opposite of pride, of course, is humility, which looks at life very differently. It looks at life as a gift. It's not, well, this is what I'm owed. It's, oh, gratefulness. This is a gift. I can't believe I have what I have. Now, true humility is different from false humility, okay? False humility grovels around and low self-esteem and says, I don't deserve this, and it's kind of Eeyore, right? Oh, poor me, and don't give me. No, that, that's not humility. That's false humility. True humility says, I'm not getting what I actually deserve, which is condemnation from God, right? So everything else is a bonus. And we are able to graciously accept the gifts God gives us. Every day is a surprise. Everything is a gift. Okay, let's move on to our second point. Like I said, first point is certainly the longest. Our hearts need to be made whole. But we're told from this passage that Nebuchadnezzar becomes like an animal. It becomes like a wild animal. As he says those prideful words as he's strolling up on the roof of his palace, he loses his authority and he's driven away into the wilderness. He loses his mind. It becomes like a wild animal for a season. Now, we don't exactly know how long. It says seven times. That could be seven months or seven seasons, which would be 18 months. It could be seven years. We don't really know, but here's the lesson. Our pride is actually defacing our humanity. I'll explain that in a second. It's making us far less than what God intends for us, right? We see Nebuchadnezzar. What did he he consider himself? A god, didn't he? he? He thought of himself as a god. So in order for him to learn who God really is, he had to become lower than a man, an animal. God is showing him actually what pride really does to us. It makes us less than human. It makes us like an animal. It dehumanizes us, making us more like an animal. Now, how? Well, let me explain that. Bear with me. You get it? Bear with me, animal? Oh, come on. Seriously. That's terrible, isn't it? All right. The pride makes us, it, it makes us less than human, all right? How? Let me try and explain. Pride makes us unable to empathize. We can't be empathetic. Why? Because pride says we did it. I don't have a need, right? Therefore, it makes it really tough to enter into someone else's story, doesn't it? Now, animals don't have empathy. They, they don't have an imagination. That's what separates us from them, one of the things And so they're not able to put themselves into someone else's position and empathise. And when we are prideful, we are like that. We can't empathise with people. We can't enter into someone else's story. Now, we looked at this a bit last week when we looked at suffering, that when we're going through a tough time, who do we want to turn to? People who know what it's like to have spent time in the valley of the shadow of death. And we want our suffering to shape us into those kind of people. But pride makes this very difficult to happen. Very difficult to humble ourselves and come alongside somebody. And I tell you what, it can really affect church community. We, as many of you know, we lived in the States for a while, and when we got there, we had a really tough time finding a church. It's a really difficult thing to find a new church. So if you're in that space, I totally empathize with you. And I know it can be difficult to find a new church home. Because how do you, what are the factors, what are the questions you should ask? And so we found ourselves visiting, visiting churches and, and honestly just kind of judging the experience. 
and just kind of thinking, well, music was pretty good or, or it wasn't that good or the teaching was okay but, you know, it was a bit long or whatever it is, right? And, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. You want to judge churches on certain criteria. I get it. But it's bad when you start thinking, what are these people, what can they do for me? What can these people do for me? You know, are these my people? Are these my kind of people? Are they, are they the right people to be around? Will they, they help my influence? Will they help me in what I need? It's tough, right? See, this is real. And some of us here, you know, we're, we're, we're a new church. What are we, 10 months old? And you can really tell that we're becoming a more established church because the front few rows are not sat in. That's a pretty standard way you can tell that you're a, a, a legitimate church that's happening. But I get it, right? Where some of us are trying to figure out, is this, is this my place? Are we going to call this church home? And I tell you what, it's hard. How do we make good decisions there? Well, if we want to be a countercultural community, we want to be a countercultural community, we've got to embrace the call of the gospel, which is this, love and serve others for the glory of Jesus. We want to be asking questions like, you know, what people can I get alongside? What ministries could, could I be a part of to help others? See, that's empathy. But pride steers us away from that. How can we mourn with those who mourn if we're just thinking, what can I get out of this? Okay. So pride takes away our empathy. What else? Pride also defaces our humanity, making us more like animals, because it steals our joy. We can't experience joy when we're full of pride. Now, I hear all the dog lovers and the cat lovers in the room, what are you talking about? My dog and cat can't experience joy. You haven't seen that dog's tail wag or that cat purr? And I understand. That's not joy, though. Right? Pets can experience happiness. Of course they can. But there's a difference between happiness and joy. See, joy is rising above our circumstances. Animals can't do that, but we have the ability to. doesn't mean we do, but we have the ability to. You see, pride sucks the life out of joy. Here's why. It won't allow us to enjoy things because when good things happen, we think, yeah, it's about time. Actually, this is five years too late. Can you relate to that? I sure can. See, with pride, everything is either owed or everything is not fair. It destroys our ability to endure suffering or it sucks out the joy of good times. See, what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar? God had to enter into his life and take away everything for him to realize it. And he praised God for it. Thank you for taking away the spiritual cancer of pride in my life that was blocking my view of the truth that you are the great giver, you are the author of life. That's doing away with cosmic plagiarism. All right, let's move on to our last point here. How do we get wholeheartedness? How do, we, how do our hearts just get rid of this pride? Let's get practically. Let's look at what we need to do. How do we get rid of it? With more accomplishments? Chase after more things, more accolades? Or do we just hit ourselves over our head and be more humble, be more humble, be more? Is that going to work? What are we going to actually do? First thing. First thing we've got to come to terms with is this. What do we really deserve? We've got to think on that. We, we deserve God's judgment. Oh, that's what we deserve. Why? Because we've all done cosmic plagiarism. 
Don't kid yourself. Every single one of us, me included. We've all said, I'm the author. I'm responsible for this. None of us has given God what he is owed. That's the first thing. Second thing, in almost the same breath, is to remember this, that we are still loved beyond measure. We are still the object of God's love, and we have been given the greatest mercy in Jesus Christ. See, we do this. We remind ourselves of those two things. What do I really deserve? I deserve to be cast away. What do I get? I'm the object of God's love. We remember those things. We do this. We invite Jesus to transform our hearts by the power of his Holy Spirit. And then I think the question is, how can we actually tell that God is changing us? How can we tell? How can we tell that God is getting rid of this spiritual cancer of pride in our lives? Well, here's a way. At the very end, Nebuchadnezzar says, you are right in all you do. Could you say that? No matter what you're going through in your life at the moment, could you honestly say, God, you're right in everything you do? Who can say, no, you've got it wrong? Could you honestly say, God, you are right in everything you do? See, when tough things happen, I'm tempted to say, God, you got it wrong. I don't deserve this. But could you say, you know what, whatever's happening, God, you are right in all you do. See, talking about deserve, Jesus, the richest king the world has ever known. You think he deserved being born into poverty, obscurity? You ever thought about that? Obscurity? You think he deserved to be laid in an animal feeding trough? Sort of manger is upon his birth? You know, Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, he left the praise of thousands upon thousands of angels, came to earth. And he endured the abuse of soldiers and the mocking from crowds. Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, he left the comfort of heaven that we have no idea what really is like. To come down here to endure nails in his hands and his feet. See, Jesus went through all of this, none of it that he deserved, of course, to give us what we could never earn. That's the gospel. He did it for you, he did it for me, so we don't have to earn our significance, so we can let go of the spiritual cancer that is pride in our heart. And when life is going south, we can say, I don't deserve this. Or we can think, you know what, I I actually don't really get what I deserve. Jesus got that. So everything else, you know what, it's a gift. I can endure these hard times because I know he endured far harder times for me. Okay. How else can we know that God is dealing with this, that he's getting rid of this spiritual cancer that I've been calling it? Well, you know what a great indicator is? How we treat people who are worse off than us. Because when we're prideful, we're so tempting to look down our nose at people who are worse off than us. But an indicator of how are we doing is God actually getting rid of the foothold of pride in our lives is how are we treating people who are worse off than us and how are we using our money? a good indicator. See, when Daniel's warning Nebuchadnezzar, oh man, he didn't want to tell Nebuchadnezzar the meaning of the dream, he says, you know what? Repent. Maybe God, this won't happen to you. And a way you can do that is being kind to the oppressed, which obviously he was not doing. 
Let me ask you this. Do you really believe that everything you have is a gift from God? Do you really believe that? Everything I have is a gift from God, or maybe just some of it. What we say and what we do, what we do really betrays what we believe, right? What's your attitude? I might get a bit controversial here. What's our attitude to giving a percentage of your income to people worse off or to the church? The idea of giving a percentage of your income to the church, whatever it is, or to others, it's a biblical teaching. Some go by the tithe principle of 10% of your income. The New Testament doesn't prescribe anything like that. It talks about generosity. Generosity to others is very much there. But let's just think about this 10% for a second. 10% seems like a lot of money, doesn't it? And I can, I can even feel the pushback. That's unreasonable. House prices might have dripped, dropped a bit, but you don't know what it's like out there. But imagine this. Imagine if you were in real, real financial trouble and you came to me. And I don't know why you'd come to me. Don't come to me. Come to someone. <laughs> but imagine, imagine. Imagine you're in real financial trouble. You come to me and I say, you know what? Here's $10,000. Here's $10,000. You say, oh, thank you so much. I'll pay you back. And I say, don't worry about it. Actually, pay me back just 1000 The other 9000 that's a gift. But pay me back 1000 What would your reaction be? Oh, it's unreasonable. No. You'd say, oh, my gosh, thank you very much. I will. Thank you very much. You see, we balk at the idea of giving 10% of our money away to others because we think all we have is ours. It's, it's, I've worked hard for this money. It's mine. See, our reaction is very telling. What we do with our money, it proves where our heart's at. Let me ask, how are you at committing cosmic plagiarism? It's all mine. Or where, you, where are you at in being able to say, okay, actually God is the author of my life. Everything I have is his. And I trust him because in spite of present appearances, God is in control. I can trust him. Are we willing to give God what he is due in every area of our lives? I tell you what, none of us have this exactly right. And we hope that you know that. We hope that you know that we are a community that struggles with this. And I'll be honest, it's hard to get these things right. But you know what? Jesus got it all right on our behalf. And you need to know that in just the very center of your being. Because when we know that we don't get what we deserve, Jesus got it on our behalf. When we know that, when we meditate on that, then we are able to make decisions not out of duty, but out of delight and out of gracious thankfulness for his gift to us. So what I think we need now is to come before God in prayer and ask him by his spirit to do some real surgery on our hearts.